Boy, I could mix up some bathtub gin to this song. This song really puts the 23 in skidoo. This jazzy little ditty is Hot Lips by Henry Boose. The Boose on the podcast for the second time. We heard him once before playing along on a song called Wang Wang Blues. Did Henry Boose ever perform on a song that does not sound like sexual innuendo 100 years later? I don't know. Of course, Wang Wang Blues was not under Henry Boos's name. I don't know why I said of course, as if that's something that everyone knows. You only know this fact if you do a podcast that starts with copyright-expired music and spend some time kicking around on Wikipedia. On Wang Wang Blues, Henry Boos was part of Paul Whiteman's orchestra. There he is again, Paul Whiteman, the inescapable white man of jazz in 1922. Henry Boos himself was white. He was from Germany. You know what? I'm assuming he's white. I know he was from Germany, <laughs> born around the turn of the century, but maybe he wasn't white. Uh, we don't know. There's certainly no way to find out. Anyway, came over from Germany, did that thing, hopped on a steamship. All people did at the turn of the century was hop on steamships. Were there people scheduled to be on these steamships? If so, how? How did they have room with all the people just hopping on, mostly jazz musicians, just hopping on random fucking steamships and coming to America. But anyway, Henry Boost jumped ship twice, actually, once to get to New York, once to get to California. It's just how you got around back then. Hey, I'm going out for milk. I'm going to jump on a steamship. And he had a good deal of success as a musician in the 20s and 30s. It's interesting what ends up on a person's Wikipedia page, though. Uh, one thing is, <laughs> Wikipedia felt it was important to tell me that Downbeat Magazine hated him. <laughs> they called his band a Mickey Mouse band. Burn. Burn. Uh, his, you never want this. There's a section <laughs> labeled marriage and annulment. Oh, you don't want that on your Wikipedia page. He got drunk and woke up married one time after a wild night out at the Hotsy Totsy Club. Tragically, there is no link on the Wikipedia page to information about the Hotsy Totsy Club, so that is just left to our imagination what might happen there. At any rate, he got married after a wild Hotsy and Totsy night at the club. It took him 18 months to get that marriage annulled. Obviously, marriage laws were very, very, very different back then. And here's the craziest thing on his Wikipedia page. He was playing a show in 1955, and he died that show an undertaker's convention. Oh, okay. You know, save a little on burial costs there. Certainly cut out the middleman. Well-timed Henry Boos. Hello. Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the totally free podcast that goes along with my totally free Substack, which you can find at I Might Be Wrong, in which I do for... Well, reasons I forget at the moment. But anyway, here we are. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you would like to, quote-unquote, pay me, you can always pay me by sharing the podcast, sharing the articles, leaving me a review of the podcast, even if the review says, uh, sucks real hard. Actually, maybe maybe please don't leave the review if the review is going to be sucks real hard. It should be a two-star review or above. Just sucks. If it's not real hard, but just sucks, that's fine. I mean, you could be more constructive with your criticism, but I'm not going to tell you how to write your review. Today's episode is called A Stoner Question Has Changed the Course of Climate Policy. I wanted to write this one 
because the Supreme Court's recent ruling, West Virginia versus EPA, it's it's a big deal. It's a big ruling. It confirms that climate policy in this country really is going to have to come from Congress. It, it's not going to come from the EPA. That's pretty much certain at this point. And I also wanted to write it because media coverage of Supreme Court rulings almost always focuses on the policy outcome and never on the substance of the ruling itself. What did they say? Why did they say it? What does the law actually say? Is the ruling a good one or a bad one? Did they have a point? Was it judicial activism? We certainly, we always call it judicial activism when we don't like the outcome. I wanted to try to get to the law at least a little bit. So the article is, A stoner question has changed the course of climate policy. Subheading, what was Justice Roberts smoking? The Supreme Court justices all agree on one thing. Congress sucks. Congress has become a pathetic little circle jerk in which sad losers publicly crap their pants. Justice Roberts, for all intents and purposes, wrote in his majority opinion on West Virginia versus EPA. Justice Kagan also weighed in. She basically wrote... These feckless donkey turds wouldn't know good legislation if it kicked them in the taint. That was the gist of it. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what she wrote. In what is probably the most contentious era of the court in our lifetime, all nine justices concur that Congress is a rubber room for useless little dorks. However, the justices disagree on who specifically is metaphorically stealing Congress's lunch money and throwing their backpack into the girls' bathroom. The conservatives think it's the bureaucracy doing that. Here, the court actually wrote, EPA claimed to discover unheralded power representing a transformative expansion of its regulatory authority in the vague language of a long-extant but rarely used statute. And that is an actual quote, not me telling a saucy little lie. The liberal justices, for what it's worth, think the Supreme Court itself is usurping Congress's power. Justice Kagan actually did opine that the court had, quote, stripped the Environmental Protection Agency of the power Congress gave it to respond to the most pressing environmental challenge of our time. End quote. This chasm in opinion led to starkly different views in the 6-3 ruling that greatly reduced EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. Now, I'm going to do something weird here. I'm going to focus on the law, not the policy outcome. Articles about Supreme Court rulings almost never discuss the relevant law. They focused almost always on policy outcomes. And people either cheer or decry rulings based on those outcomes. Everyone in America seems to believe that the objective answer to any legal question, in an amazing coincidence, just so happens to align with the policy outcome they prefer. What are the odds? We treat this fact, quote-unquote, as so obvious that any disagreement must be the work of devious activist judges. Conservatives sang the activist judges' song for decades, while liberals denounced them as sore losers, and now the roles have exactly reversed. But few people seem to appreciate the irony. So before I start, 
I do insist that we all take a moment to appreciate the irony. Please take this moment now. Here we go. Has the irony been sufficiently appreciated? Very good. Let's continue. After, that is, after I mentioned that that music clip came from Mind Relax Music for You. Because they can still sue you if you don't mention their name. Anyway, let's continue now. A federal agency cannot do anything without congressional authority. The bureaucracy you can maybe think of as Congress's contractors. They do jobs that Congress can't do themselves. It is a logical system, if you think about it. If the government needs to, say, break up a drug ring, it is probably better if that job is farmed out to highly trained DEA agents instead of having Chuck Grassley and Elizabeth Warren start kicking down doors themselves. Though I would like to see that, and I would also watch it as maybe a Netflix series. Anyway, Congress gives the bureaucracy jobs, and Congress often uses vague language to authorize various actions. They really have to. It's impossible to anticipate every possible nuance that an agency might encounter in the course of doing the thing that Congress wants them to do. Broad language also provides longevity. The Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau has the authority to regulate alcohol. Generally, they do not have the authority to regulate, for example, a list of spirits that would be rendered obsolete every time the sick fucking fucks at Budweiser add a new sin against liquor to their product line of the damned. I speak here specifically of the Budweiser Strawberita or Limerita. There's a whole Arita line, and no Congress, no matter how demented, could have ever foreseen that. So, Congress gives authority to federal agencies, but the parameters of that authority are vague pretty much by definition. The question in the Supreme Court case that we're talking about, West Virginia versus EPA, is whether EPA overstepped its authority in 2015 when it tried to regulate greenhouse gases from power plants. EPA claims that its authority comes from Section 111D of the 1970 Clean Air Act, which that provision is too long to cite in full, but I do have a link to it in the written version of the article in case you are trying to commit suicide by boredom. Luckily, understanding the key question in the case does not require reading the full law. You just need to channel your inner stoned freshman and ponder this question. What, like, really is a system if you think about it, man. The definition of the word system is at the center of this case. That's because the law requires EPA to regulate air pollution according to, quote, the best system, there it is, of emission reduction that has been adequately demonstrated, end quote. So what that means is EPA cannot just say to a power plant, for example, cut your emissions in half. They have to have a method for cutting emissions, a system, if you will, that actually exists somewhere on Earth. Traditionally, 
These systems have usually been technology, for example, scrubbers, so-called, that are added. It's not like literally a Brillo pad. So, But they're called scrubbers, and they are added to coal-fired power plants. That is an example of a technological system. Though they can also be other things. They can be processes, such as changes to how the plant operates. All those things are systems. And the system, if it is that, that's the whole debate, that EPA used in the 2015 regulation that's at the center of this case is essentially a cap-and-trade plan for power plants. Plants that emit high levels of greenhouse gases, and we are mostly talking about coal-fired power plants here, would have to reduce their emissions by either, number one, switching to low-carbon methods of power production, or number two, by buying carbon emission credits from low-carbon producers elsewhere in the power grid. So you got a coal-fired plant, you can spew all the carbon into the atmosphere you want as long as you offset that by buying a credit from for example, a solar plant or maybe a wind or nuclear plant. Sounds a little wonky. It is a little weird. There are systems like this in the world. They basically work. And they are basically a market-based approach. This is the type of system that economists usually like. It is definitely an improvement on the old command and control style of regulation in which a company could either, number one, meet EPA's pollution targets, no matter what the cost, or number two, Go to hell. Those were basically the options. Ironically, using a more market-friendly method of regulation in this case is what got EPA in trouble with the conservative justices. So Justice Roberts and the five justices who joined his opinion, who are the exact five you would guess joined his opinion, it's the conservative ones, they think that EPA's cap-and-trade system is absolutely not a system. Justice Roberts writes, The word system... I don't do a John Roberts impression. I don't do an impression of most people on this planet. It's basically only the Beatles and, if I'm drunk, Jimmy Stewart. So here's John Roberts. The word system, shorn of all context, is an empty vessel. Such a vague Statutory grant is not close to the sort of clear authorization required. End quote. And I have to say here, I am sympathetic to Justice Roberts' concern. You cannot have federal agencies seizing authority that nobody gave them by distorting the English language beyond all recognition. The dumbest articles about this case and the dumbest Twitter threads about this case have basically argued that the ruling is wrong because climate change is an emergency, all caps. And now I happen to believe that climate change is an emergency, or at least a very big important thing, but more importantly, so fucking what? You can't just chuck the rule of law out the window and say, well, it's okay this time because emergency. Most power grabs in history use emergency as a pretext, the very concept of a dictator arose in ancient Rome as a supposed-to-be-temporary post in response to an emergency. Of course, the way it happened is that the emergency never ended, and the post became the opposite of temporary, and Rome was ultimately unable to stab their way back to being a republic. So you can't just say emergency and then do whatever you want. The big question 
is still is EPA's plan a system as intended by the law? And I think that it is. In her dissent, Justice Kagan cited the definition of system in... (laughs) She actually did this. Webster's Dictionary, which, as far as I'm concerned, provides a little more overlap between a Supreme Court opinion and a third-grade book report than I am comfortable with. Nonetheless... Justice Kagan provides the Webster's definition in order to use a process that is, in her words, supposedly a staple of this court's supposedly textualist method, end quote. She is, in jurisprudence speak, adopting her colleagues' methods to demonstrate their deviation from prior reasoning. Phrased another way, she's being a little bit of a dick, but that does not mean that she's wrong. Justice Roberts argues that a system has to mean what it has mostly meant since 1970, which is a solution, probably technology, implemented at the facility level. And that's important. At the facility level, not at the, as it is in this case, grid-wide level, not at the level of many power plants. He says it has to apply to just one power plant at a time. So he's thinking of the stuff I was talking about before, scrubbers, technology, something similar to that. Personally, I think this is too narrow of a reading of the law. The Clean Air Act mentions technological solutions many places, but it does not mention them in the relevant section, section 111D. In her dissent, Justice Kagan points to nine places in the Clean Air Act where Congress tells EPA to use technological controls. So Congress obviously was not afraid to specifically mention technology when that's what they had in mind, but Section 111D only refers to systems, not to technology. Conservative jurists often, rightly in my opinion, complain about judges finding words in the text that aren't there. But I think that is exactly what Justice Roberts is doing here. Congress voted broad language into law. Roberts reads that language and assumes that they must have meant something more narrow, as if Rosemary Woods extended her early 70s accidental deletion spree by striking out language limiting EPA's authority. Justice Roberts also argues that the fact that Congress has considered and not passed various cap-and-trade schemes is evidence that they would not delegate similar authority to EPA. I personally think this is a weak argument. First, Justice Roberts is presumably referring, in large part, to the doomed American Clean Energy and Security Act of 2009, the congressional screw-up that just never stops screwing. And it's true. Congress did indeed, as I painfully remember, fail to pass a cap-and-trade system in one of the more maddening examples of interest group influence in recent memory. But that proposal, it should be pointed out, was far broader than what EPA had in mind. EPA's cap-and-trade plan only applied to existing power plants. The 2009 bill applied to the entire economy. So citing that bill's failure as evidence that Congress is dead set against all cap-and-trade systems 
is like arguing that choosing not to purchase a $600 prefix dinner is evidence that you, in fact, don't want any food at all. Also, think about this. Congress changes. Congress is not a deity unmoored from time and space. It is, in fact, a constantly changing pile of primates, many of whom are morons. I thought we agreed on this. Personally, I find it completely plausible that a Congress in year X might create a power that a Congress in year Y would not. That does not render the year X law invalid. The law remains in effect until Congress speaks again. Congress could pass a law clarifying the limits of Section 111B, but they have not done so. Justice Roberts is looking at the actions of the 2009 Congress, which was operating, it should be noted, in the era of soft money TV ads and the use of the filibuster as a terrorist tactic. He's using that 2009 Congress to divine the intent of the 1970 Congress, which, let's be honest, was probably high as a fucking kite. Using 2009 to divine the intent of 1970 makes no sense to me. In the course of ostensibly standing up for Congress's authority, Roberts essentially neuters it. A plain reading of the law. One could say a textualist reading of the law, if you want to be a dick, and I do, appears to grant EPA broad authority, to which Justice Roberts says, nah. He is basically requiring Congress to pass a second law affirming what they said the first time. That is enormously consequential because polarization and the filibuster have made passing a major law about as easy as fitting a horse into a smart car. Those who favor a small regulatory state could pass a law defining the limits of EPA's power, but on the other hand, no, actually they probably couldn't because passing laws is real hard. Lucky for those people, the Supreme Court has placed the onus of action on those who want EPA to do what Congress honestly seems to have already directed them to do 52 years ago. And I began this article by mocking people who read the law in a way that supports their preferred policy outcome. And now I have read the law in a way that supports my preferred policy outcome. Well, <sighs> fucking damn. You know, maybe I am hopelessly biased. I did work for the EPA for nine years, after all. Though I will also point out that as a heterodox liberal blogger, I do get credibility points from criticizing the left. And I hate to say it, but Roberts is right, peace. Oh, that really would have done well on Twitter. So I am not going to argue that I am objective or fair-minded. I would never argue that. But I will argue that my craven self-interest, which is the only thing I care about, does not point me in any clear direction. This ruling means that it is now up to Congress to develop a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Or, I should say, develop another way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, because as far as I'm concerned, they already did this in 1970. 
Now, I do not expect congressional action in the near future. As we've discussed, Congress is a bunch of feckless little sad sacks who have about as much power as a pile of hair. And in my opinion, the Supreme Court, not the EPA, to be clear, is behind the latest reduction in Congress's power. And if you sense that I am maybe a little bit blasé about a major policy setback on a major issue, that is because, as far as I'm concerned, this happened six years ago. When Trump got elected, it seemed clear to me that the regulatory path to emission reductions was closed off. I shall now swirl a snifter of brandy and reflect on how goddamned right I am about everything all the time. The funny thing is that even though the 2015 regulation never went into effect, the emissions reductions it required happened anyway. This is true. Advances in renewables and natural gas extraction did more to move us away from coal than EPA sought to do, which does seem like more evidence to me that this was not just a federal agency run amok. I continue to feel that climate change will be solved by technology and things like the green energy subsidies in the rotting corpse of the Build Back Better bill would help move us down that path. It is up to Congress to act if they can stop being such impotent little dweebs for even just a minute. And that's the episode. You know, I'll be honest, it's often hard for me to avoid pessimism when it comes to climate change. That 2009 bill that I referenced, uh, I did the math. That's 13 years ago now (laughs) that that didn't happen. 13 years ago was when we were trying to pass a bill... That was kind of, you know, like, this. Is, look, we need to do this. Now's, now's the time. Now's the time. After that, the Clean Power Plan, which was the subject of the Supreme Court hearing. Just nothing ever works. The only good news I can come up with is that... Well, okay, two things. Number one, technology is coming online. Number two, the green energy subsidies in the American Rescue Plan, also in 2009 did seem to help some. So it looks like that's the strategy we're going with. Government funding of various green technologies could work. Not my first choice, but beggars can't be choosers. And the other thing I've got my fingers crossed for is the scenario I outlined in a piece called Maybe the Nerds Will Just Save Our Stupid Asses, in which uh, basically the government does everything wrong and then people just invent the shit that we need anyway. Could happen. Could happen. It's sort of sometimes happening now. Anyway, on that pessimistic note about the Earth uh, possibly being doomed, which is only a little bit of hyperbole, I suppose, I'm going to end the episode. As always, you can find all of my crap at imightberwrong.substack.com. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.